Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be part of the Sparkfile coaching community? Here's how the Sparkfile community describes it. The most honest, safe, life-affirming, and life-changing experience I've had in all my 55 years. The best. I'm incredibly grateful to Laura and Susan for teaching me the tools and structures that I need to get past the fear and to just do it anyway. The Spark File is a portal to your creative powers and believing in yourself. This group is spiritually, emotionally, mentally supportive, creative, amazing, encouraging, life-shifting, and liberating uber talented warm thoughtful lovely wonderful people i need a group like this to give me the kick in the ass that i need to start making the things that i want to make and do there's a big beautiful creative trampoline that just like catches you gently and just launches you out with so much love if you want to learn more about the spark file creativity coaching including our six-month blaze course visit the sparkfile.com slash blaze and schedule a no pressure no obligation call to find out what is possible and how we can support you it's time to take it and make it Hey, everybody, this episode of The Spark File was recorded right before Wordle was purchased by the New York Times. But don't worry, there's still lots to learn from this little game that could. Enjoy the show. The Spark File podcast may contain profanity and other adult content. Please use your discretion. When I bump into something that inspires me, I dump it in my spark. Pump it in my spark fire. I jump into my spark fire. Let's open up the spark fire. Welcome to the spark file, where we believe that everyone is creative, but smart creative people don't go it alone. I'm Laura Camion. And I'm Susan Blackwell, and we are creativity coaches who help people fear less, create more, and bring their creative visions to life, baby. If you are an OG member of the Sparkfile community, well, welcome back, Sparkler. Well, well, well. If you're joining us for the first time, hi, welcome, friend. Hi. Know that just by listening to this podcast, you are joining a warm and wonderful clan of creatives. A warm and wonderful clan of creatives. Clan of creatives, yes. Uh, but hold up. You may be asking yourself, Ladies, what exactly is a spark file? A spark file is a place where you consistently collect all your inspirations and fascinations. If you're like us and you're making stuff all the time or you want to be making stuff all the time, you know if you're not careful, your campfire of creativity can flicker out. But do not despair. We are collecting kindling in the form of fresh ideas, images, and inspiration that spark creativity and pique curiosity. To light a fire under our collective asses to make things like this podcast. Or an open market, freely accessible, creation by recombination gift to the world. Jeez Louises. Uh-huh. Every episode, we're going to reach into our spark files and exchange some sparks. And from time to time, we're going to talk to some folks who spark us too. That means we have more sparks than we can possibly use in this lifetime, friends. My God, if something lights you up, we encourage you to please take that thing and make something of it. So without further ado, let's open up the, the spark, spark file. file. The spark file.
that Scottish accent is one of the most rigorous dialects to do. It's specific. It's muscular. And I'm sure within it, there's 20 different variations of it. I'm just talking about the one that I learned in undergrad, Laura. Oh, that one. Also rigorous. Also rigorous. Also rigorous. Uh, There's so many things to talk about. I'm going to throw something in here. Oh my God. Okay. Throw it in here. Laura Camion, I think I am about a year or two behind the rest of the world. We are binging Ted Lasso. Girl, I just finished binging Ted Lasso just a couple months ago. So I am also behind the rest of the world. Two little behindies. I needed it though. It was like, I mean, it's like everything everyone says. It was like meds for my soul. It's really, really well crafted. The writing is really, really well crafted. And the way that they plant seeds and start introducing threads that pay off like well down the line, but also I think it's laugh out loud funny. Yes, agree. It's L O L, maybe not R O F L, but what the fuck is? And it is super smart. The casting is fantastic, but something I like about it is something I like about the Spark File, which is there is a foundation of kindness, but it's also adult. It is by adults for adults. Mm -hmm. And so you get your good profanity. You get your good sex positivity. You get all that. You get all of that. And that writing, oh my God, that writing. You get all of that. Then you also get like such a positive outlook by choice. And what I like about season two is that they obviously started to explore, well, Ted Lasso can't just be like. Yeah, Dimensions. All of them, for all of them, yeah. And so, like, going deeper and seeing in him that there is pain just like anyone else, but he makes a choice on a day-to-day basis that he's going to look at the world through a positive lens. And it is a choice. Yeah. It is a choice. And I think of that, like, the people that I have close to me in my world, starting with West Day and Susan Blackwell, we all make that choice. It's not that things are perfect. We just choose to be like, I'm going to see it in the most positive way that I can. It's very The Spark File, I have to say. There's a line in there that I love. I don't think this is a big spoiler. I just think it's a great line. Ted says, I love meeting people's moms. It's like reading an instruction manual as to why they're nuts. Uh, true. And I just, I just, so I just think it's really true. smart. I think it's really, really smart. The other thing that I love that it does is there's some tropes in television and theater. And if you think it's going to zig, it zags. 100%. I love the female relationships that we've seen so far as well, because it sets it up as, you know, two people that you might assume would have competitive feelings toward each other for various reasons. And It's so refreshing. It just dispenses with that immediately. And it's going to be like, yeah, we are here for each other. We're supporting each other. Full stop. There's a moment where somebody has a one night stand with somebody and then they run into them like some many episodes later and it's not awkward. They're just like two adults that are like, hey, it's good to see you. It's good to see you too. Just things like that where I'm like, that's refreshing. Refreshing. It's refreshing. Delightful treat. I can't wait for the next season. Full disclosure. I tried Ted Lasso, I think two times and was like, I don't know. I'm just, I watched an episode and I was like, yeah, it's like a little 
dorky. It was a little too Pollyanna. And what I didn't stay around long enough for, which I now have, is that it's so much more multidimensional. So if you haven't tried it yet, nothing is for everyone. But if you like the Spark File, you might like Ted Lasso. That's a weird endorsement, but I think it's true. <laughs> you know what? That's a pull quote they're going to use right there. <laughs> I just wrote our, us a little pull quote. Um, Laura, what do you have shaken I'm over there? I'm squirrely today. I just, I don't know. I'm I love it. I like squirrely Laura. Uh, squirrely Laura is like a little not well rested. Um, but you know, we take the day and we see what happens. But just like Ted Lasso, yeah. I'm going to like throw myself into it with a positive attitude. Just like this spark. Is there anything else? We got the sweetest Instagram message from Christina. Christina, thank you for this message. It's so good. Do you want to read it? Okay. So this came in from Christina. I'm in the middle of a singing contest and I was backstage sharing with everyone the amazing performance anxiety spark. So that Christine is referring to an earlier episode of the spark file where we explored performance anxiety. And thank you. Thank you for sharing that with the people on our behalf, Christina. One friend just called you Las Chispitas, which is an amazing translation for little sparks in Spanish. So from now on, that's how I'll call you. And Christina continues. He asked, ¿Qué dijeron las chispitas? Which translates to, what did the little sparks say? What did the little sparks say? I'm not sure. My high school Spanish may have been a little mangled. But the upshot is, Christina, this message made our week. And when (laughs) Laura made sure that I saw that come in on our social media, I was like, can we get t-shirts printed that say Las Chispitas? It just is so joyful. I can't even say it without smiling. Little sparks. I love it. Las Chispitas. Oh, it's such an honor, Christina. Thank you so much for being out there telling people about the Spark File and talking about the things that these little sparks say. It really means a lot. It means a lot. And thanks for feeding us back that beautiful, tell your friend we said thank you too. That is so sweet. Las Chispitas. So yeah, that kind of stuff is going on. I love getting messages like that. It just feels so good. It feels really good. It does. You know what else feels good? Fresh sparks. What you got for me, Laura Camion? Oh my God. Well, first of all, Suze, the thing I want to talk about today, I'm kind of surprised that you and I haven't talked about this off mic yet, but here we are. Because we haven't had time. We haven't had time, but so now we'll take this time for me to ask, have you and Nathan been playing Wordle? Laura Camion, I am aware of the existence of Wordle. I'm aware of the increasing popularity Uh of Wordle. uh I have even been like, I need to understand what's happening in the zeitgeist, done a quick Google started reading an article and I was like, I don't have fucking time for this, but I'm so glad that this dedicated time, I think I'm going to get everything you needed to know about Wordle and we're afraid to ask. And even more, and even maybe not everything about Wordle, but what are the best things we can learn from Wordle? Wes and I discovered it just like a week or maybe two, not, not definitely not two weeks ago, but maybe a week and a half. And When we remember to, like we play it together almost every night. It's just a fun, like 10, 10, 15 minutes of fun activity. That's it. We take delight in it. 
I can't believe we haven't talked about this, but again, we haven't had time. Tell me more. So of course, with the success of Wordle have come the thousands upon thousands of articles about what it's done right, lessons we can learn from it. And then we began the not so great commentary that has accompanied it. So for my spark today, I wanted to dive into the light and then a little bit of the dark and relate all of it to our creativity. Wow. So that's what we're going to do today for my spark, Suze. Sit back, relax. I'm into it. For those of you like Suze who don't know what Wordle is or how we got here, I'm going to give you a little recap. There is a person whose name is Josh Wardle, Wardle. W-A-R-D-L-E. He lives in Brooklyn. He's a software developer and his partner loves word games, things like Spelling Bee in the New York Times. And Josh loves his partner. So Josh created a word game for his partner as a sweet, sweet, sweet gift. That is a beautiful little piece of creativity. Is that, isn't that just wonderful? So sweet. And he put that word game up online where anyone could access it completely free, completely free. It went up in October of 2021. And by November, some friends and family had gotten into it and shared it a little. There were like 90 players at the time. By early January 2022, there were more than 300,000 players. And now at the time of this recording, it is late January and there are more than 2 million, almost 3 million players per week. Wow. Crazy, crazy. So the game itself is so, so simple. Here's the thing, Suze, you have six tries to guess a five letter word. Okay. And with each attempt, you learn more about what letters are in the word or not in the word, and you get closer to guessing the correct word. For example, it's very common to start with the first guess being like a do or something that has a whole bunch of vowels in it. So it will tell you, yes, there's an A, but it's not the first letter. Or yes, there's an E in the word, but it's not in that position. So you can, you assess quickly which of these letters are in the word and are they in the right spot. So you keep trying, but you only have six tries to get the right word. But here's the kicker. There's only one word per day. And once you're done, you wait 24 hours until the next word is available. And everyone is searching for the same word, which gives it sort of this larger social appeal. But we're going to get into all of that. Yes. So if you spend any time at all online, you have likely seen people sharing their results. You've seen articles written about this instant popularity, articles sharing best practices and tips to up your game, like how understanding the sonority sequencing principle in linguistics can help your wordle play. This is the kind of stuff that you can learn right now. At this point, there are also articles about what we can learn from Wordle, what we can glean from the Wordle experience in regard to the other things we create. So I'm going to reference two articles to begin with now, one on Medium from one of my new favorites, Clive Thompson, and one in Inc. Magazine written by Minda Zetlin. So Clive Thompson's article is called Six Lessons from the Success of Wordle. And Minda Zetlin's article is three important lessons you can learn from the runaway success of Wordle. They love uh, any like numbers in a, on a cover of a magazine right. or in the title of an article. Quick and easy. So, Here's what so we So clicky, right? super clicky. So yep. maybe I should, I might change the title of this six. Yeah. 
No, I, mine would probably be seven or eight things. And I'll leave it vague like that. Seven <laughs> or eight things you could learn from Wordle. Okay, here we go. So starting with Clive's first. First up, Clive says, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. According to Clive, most successful ideas do not arrive out of nowhere. They're extensions or riffs on existing ones. As you know, Suze, at Blue Man Group, we would call this creation by recombination. Right. And friends, there is no shame in the recombination game. There is no shame in it. And I just want to state that over and over and over again. Because that, like, it's already been done, vampire lives in our minds. It can sometimes be a barrier to entry where people are like, well, there's something sort of similar to this out in the world. People, please continue. Please move on with your vision of your thing, even if it borrows from various things. For Wordle, Josh Wordle used different components of various games to come up with a new one. He took aspects of Mastermind, Giotto, which was a game from the 1950s, and the 1980s TV show Lingo, which has been rebooted several times, even as recently as last year. And then he put a very fresh spin on all of it, making the just one game per day with no ticking clock. Clive says this rule is particularly true with games where tinkering with an existing form of play can create something that is delightfully new while also being familiar. That combination of new yet familiar is pure gold. Do something too derivative and people yawn. Do something too novel and they're baffled. The path to wild success is hitting upon that midpoint. You know what that reminds me of, Suze? That reminds me of Raymond Lowy, the father of industrial design and his term, Maya. Most advanced yet acceptable. That's right. So that, that idea of being torn between like a love of new things and a fear of new things, this intersection of this familiar point and new point and Wordle really taps right into that. That is Maya. But I think it's really true about all the things that we create. Sometimes it's so easy to get in our heads. Like, I think I've seen something like this before. Maybe it's already been done. So again, we say everything is building upon things that have already been done. Just bring a fresh perspective to it. Make it your own and it will be unique, period. Number two on Clive's list is Making something as a gift is a powerful motivation. Mm. Friends, you know, we've been saying this nonstop. Making something just for the sake of making something is enough. You Mm. were meant to create. It does not need to be money generating in order to be validating. Josh Wardle created this game for his partner as a gift. That's it. That's it. Financial gain is not the only reason to create things. Your creative endeavors can be a gift to someone else, a gift to the world, or simply a gift to yourself. In this case, Wardle was not intending to make any money off of the game, so he built it with no advertising, no in-app purchases, no fee at all to play the game. The experience of it is unique for us without all those commercial aspects, And probably even more likely that we passed it on to other people because of our experience. Yeah. Which brings us to number three, make things for an audience of one. Make things for an audience of one. Josh Wardle had exactly one person in mind when he was creating Wordle. 
and he used his personal preferences as a guide. Clive says in his article, when we're creating things, it's normal to start worrying about how our audience will react. All those different people with different aesthetics, some of them are going to love this part of what you're doing, but hate this other part. Worrying about this can lead you into a rat hole of self-censorship where you try to satisfy everyone and wind up satisfying no one. In Minda's article in Inc., this idea intersects with her list of lessons. She says, make something you love is number one. Mm. When you create something you love so much that you're happy to do it for free, there's a good chance other people will love it too. Love that. You love it. And it reminds me, I feel like I I never know what we've talked about off mic in class or on the podcast. So if you're hearing this for the second time on the podcast within like a week, it's a thought so nice. I'm saying it twice. (laughs) We had been invited by the Miranda Family Fellows. That's Lin-Manuel, Miranda, and his family have this group of scholars that they're essentially supporting them in their educational endeavors. Yeah, and just making more things accessible to them to widen their experiences. Yeah, so we had been asked to come and teach a workshop with this small, wonderful group of students. And then Lynn and his family came and we had this roundtable discussion And Lynn was saying that thing about it has to move you first. That's right. Whenever you're making something, it has to move you first. And I do think that this speaks to this idea, whether you're making something from a place of love or as a gift, like it has to move you and maybe that one other person first. I love this. I I literally wrote down, like, I think here at the Spark File, we would say make things for an audience of one and make that one person you. If you find it funny, if you find it engaging, if you find it thought provoking, if you approve of its aesthetic and it makes you feel all the feels, you are most likely onto something that will cause others to feel things too. I mean, you can't guarantee it. Obviously you can only gauge whether or not it appeals to you, but if you don't start there, you're just taking a guess a wild guess at what might move someone else. Yeah. But if you start with like, does this move me? Do I feel things? That's where I think we start. Yeah. I feel like we did that when we were making title of show, we were really trying to bring things to the table, literally to the kitchen table that made us and each other laugh. That was the audience. It was ourselves and each other. The entire experience at Blue Man Group, same. They're like, no one's ever done a show like this. And people literally said, you can't do that. They were like, what show would we want to see? And then you'll find out if anyone else, maybe you're the only one weirdo out there. Maybe. Yeah. But most likely there's fellow weirdos out there. I love this. In an interview for Slate, Josh Wardle said, I used to work in Silicon Valley and I'm aware of the things that, especially with games, you're meant to do with people's attention. You're trying to capture as much of people's attention as you can. So that involves things like endless play or sending them push notifications or asking them for sign-up information. And philosophically, I enjoy doing the opposite of all those things, doing (laughs) all the things that you're not meant to do, which I think has had a bizarrely had an effect where this game feels really human and just enjoyable. Yeah. So by ignoring the rules of what he was supposed to do when making this game, Josh made a game he and his partner would want to play. And in the process, 
he made a game millions of us want to play. So Clive's number four is observe what your fans are doing. And I would add, and don't be afraid to adapt to feedback you are learning. One of the things we can attribute Wordle's viral success to is that on social media, it was easy to share these grids that showed like how I solved today's puzzle. That is the thing that, that was like the gateway where I was like, what is that? Because it looks like a um, like tiny side spark. Nathan has a tattoo on his arm and it just looks like, it almost looks like a stretched wordle. It's more of a rectangle uh-huh. and it has a grid. And then some of those squares are filled in and some are not. So that, oh my God. Yeah. That looks very much like wordle. It looks like a stretched out wordle. Yeah. And with in his case, it represents something like very personal to him. And he took that very personal information and he encoded it in this wordle that he has on his arm. But when I saw that, I was like, that all means something, but I don't have the decoder ring to crack what that means. Which is a good thing because this particular way of sharing helped people to be able to show that they solved the puzzle and how they solved it, but it doesn't give you the answer. Yes. So that was super, super smart. That tile grid was like perfect for a quick brag or fun engagement online with other people who are trying to solve the puzzle. But that was not Josh's idea. He didn't have that at first. He put this out into the world. And then over time, he noticed something that a fan was doing to share their Wordle results online. He said this in that uh, Slate interview. The first thing I have to point out is that I did not come up with the emoji grid. Mm. Wordle, as I built it, got picked up in the New York Times newsletter and people started playing it. And there was no share grid. And for some reason that I don't fully understand, the game got really big in New Zealand and a New Zealand Twitter was playing a lot of the game. Someone out there who I don't know came up with the emoji grid as a spoiler-free way of sharing her results with other people. Wow. Previously, people were just saying, Wordle in three. And then she added this visual component that tells a story. So I saw other people start doing it. And then I manually typed out the emoji grid going back and forth, referencing it. So I'm like, wait, I can make this. I can just pull this into the game. And obviously- He can write the code. Yeah. yeah, It's had a huge impact on helping it go viral. Amazing. So when I think about this and I combine it with the message before, so I think the lesson here is like, first you create the work you want to create. And then you watch and see how people are engaging and interacting with it. And if you can learn from that, you can adapt to support the way that they want to engage. As Clive mentions in the early days of Twitter, it was really clever users who invented the retweet and the at reply. And to their credit, Twitter's engineers spotted that behavior, Ah. adopted it as native features, and they helped to catalyze Twitter's explosive growth. So again, I just want to note both of those examples of adaptation came in the growth phase, not in the creation phase. They created a thing and they put it in the world. Then they made adaptations as a way to support those who wanted to organically spread the word. Can I just say, I've been thinking about this so much lately. Yeah. I've been thinking about how we have been making all sorts of things for the past couple of years. This podcast, our coaching groups and all of all of this stuff 
right now we're in the middle of doing some work on our house. And it's not until you actually get in to the making of something that it starts to just expand and you see possibilities that you would have never seen unless you were actually in the making of it and also in the sharing of it, the actual sharing of the light of it. Yes. 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 The sharing of the light of it. You can learn so much, like Clive says, by watching your audience and the way what are they sharing about it? What way are they sharing it? And how can I help them share it more freely and just make it easy on them and make it joyful for them? Yeah, this is awesome. Thanks, Zeus. Okay, so number five on Clive's list is forget the app store, make stuff on the open web. Remember, his article is like about design. Yes. So for me, I've interpreted this for all the rest of us in, in our creativity. I think the real meaning behind this one is make your work accessible. So for Wordle, anyone can play it. It's free. You can play it in any browser. You don't have to buy it or download it from the app store. There is no barrier to entry. You don't have to give your email address or set up an account or log in. According to Anil Dash on his blog, The Glitch Blog, People are especially enthusiastic about things they can share without having to go through an app store, without being bogged down by having lots of their data captured during the experience. And I agree, it is so refreshingly simple Mm. and accessible. In an article in the New York Times by Daniel Victor titled, Wordle is a Love Story, Josh Wardle says, I think people kind of appreciate that this thing's online and it's just for fun. Mr. Wardle said in an interview on Monday, it's not trying to do anything shady with your data or with your eyeballs. It's just a game for fun. Takeaway here, I think, is make your work accessible and let people experience it without telling them how to experience it or asking anything from them. Those shops, like, you know, when you go online, you go to a shop you think you might be interested in, and they ask you if you want to join their mailing list before you're even able to see the products. I'm like, I don't know yet. I don't know. I haven't, I can't even see your website. You're asking me (laughs) like I need to give over my information or asking you to refer them to three of your friends. And I don't even know what I think yet because I can't see it. It's not accessible to me until I've paid a price of some kind. And I don't mean, you know, like buying a ticket or whatnot, but I have had to give you the key to some part of my life that I'm not sure I want to give you yet. How about make it easily available and let people have their own experience of it before you ask anything of them? Mm. Just an idea. You playing that out in your mind? I'm playing it out of my mind because I think we're guilty of it, like on our own website. Like, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, yeah, but you can, you don't have to give us your, your information in order to enjoy the website, like one click and you get out of that. I think that people can go and listen to the podcast. We don't have all their information. There's no barrier to entry. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I mean, I don't want to jump your spark. And if you're going to get to this, please just push pause, push my nose and it will push pause. Does he monetize it? Not at all. Susan, not at all. He's not making a dime off of it. It was a gift and it still continues to be a gift. In fact, I'm not going to get this story completely right because I haven't like done a ton of research, but there was another guy, software engineer, who was like, okay, cool. You're not going to monetize it. He copied the whole thing. 
he created another one, put it on the app store, started selling it, then got on Twitter to brag about the fact that he was selling it and people like fucking pounced on him and Apple took it down. So now you won't be selling anymore. That's not pure. And people are loving the purity of this. People are loving the purity of it. And I'm telling you, Suze, it is so refreshing. It feels so old school. It makes, honestly, sometimes it makes me nostalgic because it feels like the old days before all this other stuff, before everything. Yeah. So Clive's number six is engineer for occasional use not for addiction. You right? No, we love we this. We love this. Yes. So according to Clive, yes. Wordle offers up only one new word every day. That's it. Once you've solved the day's word, you stop playing. Yes. You go do other stuff like your job or hanging out with your loved ones. Sure, you might hanker to play more Wordle, but you can't. You got to wait till tomorrow. The idea of making yourself scarce seems so counter to the world that we're living in right now. We're about exposure, 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 exposing ourselves multiple times per day, multiple posts, and the idea of staying relevant, trying to break through the noise and then keep people's attention. The whole thing goes against the grain. In the New York Times article, Josh says, the breakthrough, he said, was limiting players to one game per day. That enforced a sense of scarcity, which leaves people wanting more, he said. The initial design ignored a lot of the growth hacking features that are virtually expected of games in the current era. While other games send notifications to your phone, hoping you'll come back throughout the day, Wordle doesn't want an intense relationship with you. <laughs> it's something that encourages you to spend three to five minutes a day. That's it. Like it doesn't want any more of your time than that. To me, this falls into the category of having respect for your audience. Take the time it takes to tell the story, express the thought, share the experience, and move on. Maybe wait to express something when you have something of value to share. Uh, I yes. know it goes against current trends, but it is worth considering. Yes, it's not five posts a day because that's what I was told I was supposed to do to grow my social media following. To grow my to grow my audience. That's right. Yeah. In Minda's article in Inc., she just succinctly says, leave people wanting more. And I'm on board with that. That is an idea that feels old school now, doesn't it? Yeah. But that's something I would say I think we both grew up with, the concept of leaving people wanting more. Make yourself a little bit scarce. Leave the party just a little bit early. People are like, hey, wait a minute. I didn't get enough of them tonight. I want more of that. Yeah. So yeah, so those are the first few lessons that I wanted to apply to our overall creativity. But now I've got a bit of the dark side. <sighs> we really can't even begin to count the number of clients or participants in our workshops who have like talked to us during classes about their fear of what people might say about their work. Yes. What if it makes someone mad at them? What if the reviews are ugly or mean? What if they get criticized? Well, the long and short of it is that is a barrier to entry if you want to have your work seen. 
Of course, you can make art for yourself and only yourself, and that can be a joyful thing, and that is enough. There's no shame in that. But if you want your work to be read or seen or experienced by other people in any way, you open yourself up to the possibility of criticism. Wordle is no exception. Mm. There is an article in The Atlantic by Charlie Wartzel called The Internet is Eating Wordle Alive. And it perfectly describes the phenomenon of how people will come for you and your work, even something as innocuous as a free five-letter word game. Really? I love this article. I love how Warsel tees it up. He says, Wordle is a newish word game that is web-based, non-monetized, and impossible to binge because there's only one puzzle a day. It's simple, but it also feels refreshing and unique. There's a social element. You can share your results without giving away the answer to the puzzle. But it is perhaps the least offensive, non-problematic, viral phenomenon to achieve escape velocity in some time. That inoffensiveness has a lot to do with why a mass of people delight in the game. The stakes are exceedingly low. It can make you feel momentarily clever, but not super smart. It can be frustrating, but it's also hard to take extremely seriously. He goes on to say, but this is the internet, a place where any and every reaction to a trend or a piece of information is not only possible, but probable. That means without too much searching, you can find a group of people who take Wordle far too seriously. Similarly, you can find people who've made being a wordler an outsized part of their online personality, seemingly overnight. And so it makes sense that there are also people who, rather reflexively, dislike the game and its legion of sometimes annoying fans. So all of that. Wordle isn't being canceled yet (laughs) that I know of. But the backlash is happening. There are people tweeting that they're going to block anyone who posts their scores. Oh, my God. Keep in mind, the posts are not even spoilers. They just don't want to hear about Uh, it. Yeah. The tweet fighting back and forth about how it's okay to like something and how it's also okay to dislike someone who likes something. It's a bit crazy. And now someone has created a bot that will tell you the answer to tomorrow's game, even if you don't want it. So it effectively like spoils the fun if you come across this in your feed. Oh my God. Warsaw explains, like anything that burns brightly on the internet, the popularity has inspired a non-trivial number of people who are done with the enthusiasm and the sharing of the scores. It's an example of a naturally occurring phenomenon in our current culture. But the dynamics as they pertain to this game are illuminating. We're not talking about cancel culture or critical race theory or even about a remake of a piece of fandom-rich intellectual property (laughs) with all kinds of emotions attached. We're talking about a web game where you spell a five-letter word. I mean... Come on, he's so right. If you're looking to create something that doesn't upset anyone, you would think that a simple, free, no-frills, five-letter word game might be able to fly under the scrutiny of our critical culture. Yep. But no, the very popularity of the game is what did it in in the first place. If you're going to share something you made with the world, you must be prepared for the positive 
and the negative opinions. I guess so. Holy moly. I, I do, Suze. I just think the days of universal appeal of anything are just long over. I mean, I think this has always been in place, but I feel like per what you're saying, it really is burning bright in our culture, yes. this sort of oppositional defiance yes. and this sort of, you know, if you say yes, I say no. If you say right, I say left. Like that just sort of pushing against and people kind of habitually living in the character two part of their brain that is sort of like it's either or it's black and white and sort of defining themselves attaching it to their identity of like i am the kind of person who likes marvel comics i am the kind of person who hates marvel comics or what have you like attaching their identity to their stance as related to a thing and also i'm the kind of person who bucks trends and you all are sheeple and all of that just like 100 you laura talk eloquently about the arena i would rather be a person that's in the yes, arena yes. hunter bell talks about it takes time to build a sandcastle and it takes a moment to kick it yeah and i'd rather be a sandcastle builder than a sandcastle kicker yes and yes. i hear that and i'm just like oh come on like mature up that part of your brain that feels the need to be special by being oppositional but listen the thing is it's not going away anytime soon, which means if this has been a block for you creatively, let us help you get past it. Let us help you get past it because it's not changing. You're right. Here's the thing. This criticism. How to give less fucks. How to give less fucks. It's 100%. Yeah. This criticism has been around forever, without a doubt. Like it's always been there, but we are living in a very distinct era. And that's why I think I love this article so much because Warzel really explains how and why this dynamic exists. Mm -hmm. But even though this is kind of to be expected, it's very distinct. And he says, there's an internet flavor to this one. What's happened with Wordle is only really possible in an environment where there's simply too much information in every sense. Wordle popped into our lives at a perfect time during a listless holiday season amid a global pandemic surge. In a way, we were primed for something like this. For the last 20 months, many people have been glued to the internet and to the technologies that relentlessly mediate our everyday experience. For many of us, those technologies have passed the point of staleness and entered the realm of resentment. Zoom fatigue, constantly bickering Facebook groups, endless TikTok scrolls, Netflix boredom, the feeling of having a million channels and nothing to watch. And here comes something that feels old school, even timeless, and therefore fresh. Mm. But he goes on to explain, as people have compared Wordle to sourdough bread or mm. the Tiger King, activities that mm -hmm. marked and defined a very specific moment. <laughs> Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso. Yes. <laughs> I've hit the Ted Lasso moment in my pandemic. In most of those pandemic hobbies, people have latched onto an activity as a life raft. It's a distraction, yes, but there's also an anxious charge to it, as if a lot of us are holding on a bit too tight to it. We just give it a little more oxygen and assign it a larger role in our daily lives. 
So little communities form on platforms everywhere, sending algorithmic signals that make the most obsessive voices sound the loudest. Mm. And this is interesting. We talked about algorithms recently in another podcast, but the algorithms pick up on the excitedly obsessed and transmit those voices out. We begin to see the articles and the tips that I mentioned earlier. We get origin stories for Wordle, the love story article I mentioned, and on and on. We have a great big pylon, if you will. Yeah. So then for those that are not in the Wordle camp, either because they don't know about it or they don't enjoy it, all of this coverage gets annoying. It feels like Wordle lovers are screaming at them. So they scream back. Mm. As Wurzel says, people making Wordle their entire personality becomes annoying enough to a person that they make disliking Wordle their entire personality. Right. Those people are naturally loud and provocative online. And thanks to social media platforms that reward engagement, their voices are amplified. And so the most provocative and annoyed and the most enthusiastic and supportive Wordle crews find each other seamlessly and proceed to piss each other off. <laughs> and thus it continues. I mean, this article illustrated to me in such a clear way how this dynamic happens and how at this point in our lives, it's almost inevitable. So if you or your work gets positive attention in some way, it is absolutely probable that it will get negative attention in some way. Yeah. For every action, there's an equal opposite reaction, right? And the internet is living proof of that. Yeah. This hits a little close to home. I always think of that fear. I do have that fear where it's sort of like, uh, yes. if something that you do sort of catches yes. and yes. It, just get ready because the, the backlash is coming and... I don't think that's unfounded. I think there's plenty of evidence for it. And I, so I feel like the antidote is really caring less. It's caring less, but it's also accepting, accepting that the negative will come because you got positive. So wise, and, so wise. You know, it's just like, what is the alternative? Making something that doesn't get anyone's attention at all, because that's the only way. What is that old phrase of like, do you want to be someone that people are talking about? Or do you want to be the person talking about other people? Yes. Because it's going to happen. You can decide. Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned this, Suze, because I'm going to mention some things that might feel sensitive. But this equal opposite reaction, it happens online for sure, but it happens in real life too. So we were on Zoom the other day with someone who is becoming a client. We could not be more excited. And at one point... <laughs> I know what you're going to say. Oh my God, I know what you're going to say. We have not talked about this in we advance. We have not have talked we? about this. But, and I have another example too. So it's this, but more. So at one point, this person mentioned that they have uh, taken a workshop with us previously. Uh -huh. And they said, yep. I loved it. And they raved for a bit. And then they said, unprompted, my roommate wasn't into it. It just wasn't their jam. No, that's not what they said. Okay. They said, my roommate hated it. Okay. So my roommate hated it. Okay. And I was like, okay. Alrighty, that's Okay. And we've had clients too in similar ways. Like we've had clients say, I love your podcast. I listen religiously. My wife hates it. She just isn't into it. Yep. And it's a full thought. It's a full thought. And we're just like, yay. Oh, okay. 
that's too bad, but yay, we found you. We found our person. Yeah. To me, this is all okay because the more you are you and the more your work is authentic to you, the more it will weed out those it isn't for. If your show is for teens who are into werewolves, let it be for teens who are into werewolves. Mm, Do not worry mm -hmm. about whether or not their parents are going to also watch it. If your work is for menopausal women, let it be for menopausal women. Do not worry about whether or not their husbands are also going to watch. And let me tell you, both of those examples, there have been huge successes made for teens who like werewolves and for menopausal women. Huge, huge successes. But the more you define who you are creating for, the more your audience will self-select. You'll truly be serving those you intend to serve and freeing up the other people to go find what they're looking for. Does that make sense? Of course it does. It makes 100% sense. And I feel like this podcast just got really personal for me. It's for me. <laughs> but Welcome in, everybody. Let's get real close. Let's circle around Suze and give her some love. Just a few thoughts that I want to share. One is um, I learned about something from one of our clients, Jess Edelstein. Hi, Jess. Yes, hi, Jess. Rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria, where that moment that happened in passing where this wonderful person, whom is completely a love, said, I took this workshop. I loved it, y'all. My roommate hated it. It's one of those things where I'm like, ooh, is this going to be one of those things that catches me and swirls for a couple of days? Uh -huh. And luckily with that, I was able to just observe it and it passed yes. by. Yes. But there have been times, clearly the two examples that you gave, and I'm sure others we could cite, but we won't take up the time. I remember them. Even if they don't take me into the, what Laura would call the twister, <laughs> even if they don't pull me into my character too, they do kind of like leave like just like a little mark sure. where I'm just like noted, noted. Um, sure. But I'm trying to work with not getting pulled into that swirl. And sometimes I'm better at it than other times. Yeah. So I just wanted to, to acknowledge for my, my fellows who have that RSD along with me, um, I see you and I feel you. Yes. There's another thing that I wanted to mention to you. I've thought about this as another spark for another day, but I'll share it with you now. And I'm kind of going to mess this up. So please enjoy it. There's this podcaster that I like to listen to. She's a coach and her name is Kara Lowenthal, I think is how you pronounce her name. But she was talking about in the realm of dating, but I do think it can be applied to creativity. Mm -hmm. She is somebody who is more zoftig. And when she was putting herself out there to date and processing through some of her feelings about her body shape and her body size, something that was helpful to her, and it's actually been helpful to me in thinking about all sorts of things, is there are these parts of us that are just parts of us. Like if somebody didn't like you, Laura, because you're a feminist, mm -hmm. if somebody didn't like me because I have silver hair or because I put a, a lot of emphasis on kindness or something like that, you would be like, well, they're not my person. They're not my person. Yeah. That person is not for me. And yet when it comes to like body shapes and sizes, there's this scrambling for some people to try to like change themselves when really it's like, 
this is me. I'm a, I'm a healthy person. And this is, this is what I look like, or I'm a feminist, or I'm a, I, I prefer to try to live in a kind hearted way, whatever it is, whatever that non-negotiable would be for you that you would be like, somebody that doesn't want to be with a feminist is not my person. Right. I'm sort of like, if you don't like my, whatever, fill in the blank creatives, like the wordle, then this just isn't for you. It's just not for you. Was that a cohesive thought? It was an absolutely cohesive thought and completely in line with this. Like the more you, you are in your creative work, I think it helps people to know. They could instantly know, like these ladies aren't for me. Listen to them. They're feminists and they're liberals and they like dogs. I don't, I don't like people like that. Right. That's a great example. I like dogs. And if somebody is like, I hate dogs, I'm like, then you're not going to be one of my people. And so think about that though, in terms of our work, what gets into us? And and I do think like we have, we have a spark coming that we've got to do about body image and all of that, because there's only so much you can control, but let's say it's your creative work we're talking about. It's your creative work. Yeah. What message did we get that your creative work will only have value if it speaks to everyone? And I mean, everyone, if it offends no one and speaks to everyone. Well, clearly having that be a motivator is not a great idea because even if it is completely innocuous and just sort of like, a kind thing that's not trying to take your money or take your data, somebody will still find a way to oppose it. 100%. And you look at like, I think in the theater world, obviously our mind goes to Hamilton. Hamilton in most recent years, which is now, I don't know, eight, 10 years. I mean, like it's been a, it's been a little while Yeah. and a certain number of years in, you started to notice all these people that have agreed that it is a masterpiece and it's extraordinary. And you just had, you just knew it was a matter of time till people were like coming for it for a variety of reasons. Oh my gosh. Yes. It's inevitable. And do you think that Lin-Manuel has looked back and said, Oh, you know what? I'm starting to feel bad about that thing I made. Because some people don't like it. I think this is a great example. When when uh, In the Heights came out, and obviously the film of In the Heights, when it came out, that was after all the success of Hamilton. So Lynn was becoming or had become a global superstar. And so there's a whole other level of scrutiny. When In the Heights came out, a lot of criticism was leveled at the film of In the Heights and then retroactively at Hamilton because people perceived that there was some shortcomings and some blind spots about the way that Lynn had dealt with certain things. And to his credit, I have to say the little bit, I'm not an expert on this, but the little bit that I did read about it, Lynn was like, I'm here and I'm listening. I'm here and I'm listening to this. And I was like, oh, that is next level. That ability to, at least in, I never have talked to Lynn about this. I don't have some inside scoop about this, but the social media tweets that were going out and things like that, I was like, that is some next level shit to be able to be like, I'm here and I am listening and I am learning. Now that we're parsing this like even more, because I think this is a next level issue from what we've been talking about, because- Yes, he said, I'm here and I'm listening. 
when it was something of real importance that needed to be listened to. Yes, yes, yes. It wasn't just people leveling complaints against Wordle and its popularity. Yes, yes years of complaints absolutely. or people just railing against Hamilton because so many other people loved it and they needed to define themselves as people who did not love it. And we didn't hear him weigh in on that. We didn't hear him chime in and be like, oh, I'm listening. Tell me more about how you didn't like it and what I should change. How could I possibly achieve approval from you? Right. You're right, Laura. When it mattered, when there was something that he could learn, yes, improve, change in himself and in his work. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But if we're just talking about personal opinion and people saying, well, I would have done it this way or I would have done it that way in regard to any aspect of the show, you have to be able to let that go and know the difference. So this is a good point. And know the difference. Then when someone is trying to teach you something that is essential to learn for your, you know, moving forward, then yeah, stop and learn that. Oh, Laura. But know the difference. Someone's simply not approving of your work or not liking it. It's not the same. Yeah. Yes. You're right. You're right. You're right. I have more thoughts, but is this an okay time to share them? Well, sure. I was just going to, you know, wrap with what do we make of it? It feels like we're moving into that. So why don't Great. you tell me what's on your list? I was just thinking about how when you were talking about this, and unpacking how the motivation for making this was creating something as a gift, mm -hmm. creating something from love, creating something for an audience of one. I just think that's so pure and so lovely. And almost immediately, my mind went back to your money, money, money uh -huh. podcast spark. Uh -huh. I got caught in like, how is he monetizing it? How is this translating into hopefully this guy being able to pay his rent or his mortgage? And the attention economy and how people's desire to keep our attention, which I resent. And I'm also like, I want to make sure that that Josh is getting paid. So I just observed myself this struggle. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And I want to believe like he worked in Silicon Valley. He has made other games. He's doing okay. Um, I feel like he's doing okay. And that can be a difference. Like it, I think it is okay, certainly to do work that you need to make money from. It, it can't always be like, I don't ever need to get paid for that. I don't think that's the message. But in this case, he it's not what he made it for. And he didn't like see an opportunity like, oh, I could monetize this. I just, I want to make it for my wife. Yeah. I think the message is not that is how it always needs to be done. But the message is that is a perfectly valid way to create. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. So Laura, what do we make of it? What do we make of it? I think the key takeaways are make things you love. Know that you cannot make everyone happy. Start by making you happy. And know that if you have any amount of success, you will have criticism too. Period. Mm. Full stop. You will. And you will survive it. Preach, preacher. Preach, baby. Oh. It's so good. Wordle. It's so good, Laura. Thank you. Wordle, thank you so much for bringing me up to speed. I feel like I can now engage with the zeitgeist and feel at peace. And I also, I just want to give you a special shout out, Laura Camion, <gasps> for doing a spark that contained the names Wordle <laughs> and Warzel. Warzel. Suze. 
that was my tongue twister for the day. Wordle. You did really good. Wordle, Wordle made Wordle and Wurzel wrote about it. <laughs> wrote about it, which is another word. Woo! That was great. Yay! Thank you for that, Laura Camion. What is so a light? Happy. My pleasure. My pleasure. Oh, friends, I think that's it. Think so. This episode of The Spark File was made on the lands of the Lenape people. And as always, we hope this put another bunch of sparks in your file. Hey, listen, if there's a spark you'd like us to explore, or if you'd like to learn more about how to coach with us to bring your creative ideas to life, email us at thesparkfile at gmail.com or submit it through our website, thesparkfile.com. We will even happily take your feedback, but you know the price of admission. First, you're going to need to share a creative risk that you've taken recently. Follow us on social at The Spark File and be sure to subscribe, rate, and five-star review this podcast. It really, really, really helps other listeners to find us. Also, if you like this podcast, we hope you share it with people that you love. And if you didn't like it, you can wardle, wardle, and wardle yourself. <laughs> if something lights you up and get your creative sparks playing we are writing you a forever permission slip to make that thing that's been knocking at your door hey it's your turn to take that spark and fan it into a flame you know you gotta take it and, and make it make it bye, bye. when i bump into something that inspires me i dump it in my spark fire could be something that I want to make or how I want to be. I pump it in my spark files. I jump into my spark files. Let's open up the spark files. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be part of the Sparkfile coaching community? Here's how the Sparkfile community describes it. The most honest, safe, life-affirming, and life-changing experience I've had in all my 55 years. The best. I'm incredibly grateful to Laura and Susan for teaching me the tools and structures that I need to get past the fear and to just do it anyway. The Sparkfile is a portal to your creative powers and believing in yourself. This group is spiritually, emotionally, mentally supportive, creative, amazing, encouraging, life-shifting, and liberating uber talented warm thoughtful lovely wonderful people i need a group like this to give me the kick in the ass that i need to start making the things that i want to make and do there's a big beautiful creative trampoline that just like catches you gently and just launches you out with so much love if you want to learn more about the spark file creativity coaching including our six-month blaze course visit the slash blaze and schedule a no pressure no obligation call to find out what is possible and how we can support you it's time to take it and make it.